All right, Emmaus, if you would take your Bible and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Hopefully, over the next few weeks, next few months, your Bible will just automatically open to 1 Corinthians because many of you are going to spend time there in your Sunday school classes. We're going to spend time there on Sunday mornings in our worship gatherings. And so we're going to understand what more, understand more of what it means that God has created us and saved us for one another. That by the power of his spirit, he brings our lives together to do exactly what Amanda read earlier, that we're not looking out for our own interests, but for the interests of others. And so we're gonna go on this journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. Kids, I know that you guys are pumped for Elevate to start next week with your children's church time. That's going to start next week. You get back into the process of Elevate, parents, grandparents. I know you guys know my heart on this, but if you need to step out in the lobby, it's no distraction to me. You've got that option. Also, kids, hang tight because I have uh, a book that we're going to read together here in a few minutes that, that I think you'll really like. Uh, students. Adults, those of you who have an email address on file with us at Emmaus, hopefully you've been receiving our daily one another devotion via email. If you've missed some days and you'd like to catch up, it's available on our website there at EmmausOKC.org. If you have not been receiving that email or you're a guest of ours this morning, even if you're not sure that you would come back to Emmaus, you don't know, but if you would like to receive that daily devotion, if you would take that Connect card in the seat back in front of you, just put your name and email address on there, we'll get you put into the system to begin to receive those devotions in your email every day. Uh, I appreciate those of you that told me that that's been meaningful to you, it's been a good process for us as a church. This first week, all we did was take one passage from each of the four Gospels that I felt was foundational for us to understand one another. Then on Friday, we read 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3, which is the sermon text this morning. Then this week, we'll just continue to gain momentum with that. So we'd love for you to receive, uh, receive those devotions. And I want to say something that just from my heart speaking to you as friend and pastor uh, Friday and Saturday, the last couple of days, our staff met together for a little staff retreat time. Uh, and I am overwhelmingly excited to be a part of Emmaus Baptist Church. I, I cannot, I know at the beginning of a year, you're supposed to stand up and say, man, I'm excited about this year. I am excited about this year. I love you guys, and I'm so excited about how God's at work in our church. The things that you're telling me about the work of the Spirit in your life and your family, things that are happening. And so we talked about things as a, as a staff that we're planning on, dreaming about, looking toward. You guys are telling me, hey, I see God at work in my life. These things are happening. Amanda and I are having a blast with our new Sunday school class. There's just so many fun things happening. And I hope, I pray that this series in 1 Corinthians would be part of what God would use in your life and, and in our church. And so to that end, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. Hopefully you had a chance to read these verses on Friday as well through your email. Here's what it says. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. 
however you are led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Just for a minute, would you bow your heads with me as we kind of slow our hearts down, focus our minds. Father, it's so good to gather in worship, just to hear a scene to use, to scene over one another, standing beside one another. Father, I thank you for a church like Emmaus where we're not trying to come together on Sunday morning to manufacture something, to, to watch something happen. God, we want Sunday morning to be an overflow of what's happened the previous week. And when that previous week has been hard and bumpy and we've been distracted from you, that Sunday morning would be a time that we reorient, we refocus, God, we're prepared that what happens right now would overflow into our lives throughout the week. And so, God, we give ourselves to you. God, I thank you for the kids that are in here. God, I thank you for our senior adults. I thank you for our families, our singles. God, thank you that you bring us together in the name of Jesus. And so we are here only because of your glory, his name, and the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want you to know, I've been doing a lot of reading for this sermon series. Big books, theological books, all kinds of things. Um, but maybe the most important book that I have read for this series has been The Big Red Tractor. Kids, The Big Red Tractor is a book by Francis Chan, uh, and I want to read that book to you, okay? I know you can't see it from where you sit, and I started to have you all come up here, but the last time at Christmas Eve service that I had you come up here, you took up a lot more space than I, uh, than I anticipated. So stay in your seats. Maybe your parents or grandparents will buy you one of these books. I'll have it up here, and you can look at it afterward if you'd like to. Here we go, The Big Red Tractor. Once upon a time, in a happy little village, a big red tractor lived in a cozy little shed. Each year when the snow started to melt, the villagers knew it was time to plow their field. So every morning they'd go out to the little shed and wake up the big red tractor. They loved the powerful put-put-kaboom noises he made. You like that? I practiced that this week. Uh, and they cheered because the big red tractor helped them with their hardest job, plowing the field. Everyone worked together to move the big red tractor through the field. Half the villagers pushed him, and the other half pulled him. He smiled cheerfully, glad to help, even though they never seemed to move him very far. The villagers worked very hard, and they always finished plowing the field just in time to plant delicious vegetables and sweet fruit before the rain came. Then one cold day, something amazing happened. Farmer Dave was cleaning out his attic and discovered a book tucked inside an old chest. It explained how the big red tractor had been made, and it showed powerful things no one knew he could do. Farmer Dave stayed up all night reading the book. He couldn't wait to tell everyone what he had discovered. The next morning, Farmer Dave gathered the villagers to tell them the good news. The big red tractor can move on his own. If we fix him, he could plow the entire field in just one day. But nobody believed him. There's no way a tractor can move on his own, they said. That sounds like a fairy tale. They laughed at him and went back to their work, and this made Farmer Dave very sad. But Farmer Dave didn't stop believing what he had read, 
Every night while the villagers were asleep, Farmer Dave stayed up late fixing the big red tractor. Finally, after many nights, Farmer Dave was done. He jumped onto the big red tractor and turned him on. Kaboom! He jumped in the driver's seat and had so much fun that he plowed the whole field that very night. The next morning, the villagers woke up to a huge surprise. Their work was done for them. They would not have to spend many weeks pushing and pulling the big red tractor over fields of dirt. It's a miracle! Who did this for us? Look over there! It was Farmer Dave sleeping on the big red tractor. The people shouted happily, Farmer Dave was right. The tractor book is true. That year, the villagers plowed and harvested many fields. They had so much extra food, they were able to share it with people in other villages who needed it. When they visited other villages, Farmer Dave and the Big Red Tractor always took the book with them so they could teach others the wonderful news they had learned. The little village kept sharing, and the villagers became known as the most generous people in the world. The Bible tells us that if we try to do things on our own, we won't accomplish much. But if we trust in Jesus... God gives us his Holy Spirit so we'll have power, the power to love others and tell them about God. God made us to be a blessing to one another. Through the Spirit, we can do great things just like Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes to you, you will receive power, Acts 1.8. How many of us in our lives and how many of us, when we think about church, we are like the big red tractor. If I try just a little bit harder, if I do this and this and this, then maybe I'll get my life together. Then maybe I'll accomplish something. Then maybe our church will be able to be who we're supposed to be. And so we push and we pull and we get to the end of the day or we get to the end of the week and we're exhausted. And to be frank about it, oftentimes we don't have much to show that really matters. And God is speaking to us, and he's speaking to his people, and he's saying, I have given you my spirit, the Holy Spirit, to empower you, to sustain you, to transform you, so that you would be able to do much that I've called you to do. Trust me. 1 Corinthians 12, we see Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. And he says this, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I want to break apart verses 1 through 2 from 1 Corinthians 12 for you. Um, if you're helped by sermon notes, if you flip that bulletin over, there's some notes that you can look at, uh, just kind of a very general framework, and you can add in anything else that would be, would be helpful for you. But just, just a couple of things that might be helpful. Paul starts chapter 12, and he says, Now concerning... Now, that's not a random phrase in 1 Corinthians. The phrase now concerning shows up several places in the book. It shows up in chapter 8. It shows up in chapter 16. It's going to show up in chapter 12, obviously, right here. Paul uses now concerning as a phrase to introduce the fact that he is answering questions that the church at Corinth had asked him. So Paul had established this church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18 in your Bible. Paul had helped start this church at Corinth. They start to run into some problems, and so they write Paul and say, Paul, we need, you, we need your help. We, we're, we're addressing some of these issues. And so in the letter to Corinth, Paul addresses several of these issues that, that they face about marriage and idols and money and spiritual gifts, all these things they're running into. So that's what now concerning is doing at the beginning of the verse there. 
It says, now concerning spiritual gifts, or at least that's what it says in the translation um, I'm reading from. Most translations will say spiritual things or spiritual gifts there. In the original, kind of the way that the Bible is given to us in Greek, it's just the word spiritual there as an adjective. So it's saying Paul is going to speak to them about spiritual things. We don't know if he's talking about spiritual people, spiritual gifts, spiritual controversies. He just says, I'm going to speak to you about spiritual things. Now we learn later that he's talking a lot about spiritual gifts. We're going to get into that as a church over the next few weeks. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is in Christ, we're going to help you walk through that process over the next few weeks of of understanding that. But right here, he's not just talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about what does it mean to be spiritual. Now this is something that's really important. I'm very passionate about this for Emmaus. We live in a church culture, especially in the part of Oklahoma where we live, that there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be spiritual. If we went around this room and we said, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? Many of you would say, no, I'm not a spiritual person. And one of the reasons you would say that is you would say, I just don't match up to those other people. I just don't have it together the way they do. I've got a hundred problems during the week. Man, Owen, I'm, I'm trying my best with my family. I'm trying to show up here at church, but, but I'm, just, I'm just not a very spiritual person. Other people, they would say, yeah, yeah, I am very spiritual. And what they mean by that is, I follow all the church rules, and I know all the church words, and I show up to church a whole lot, and my family was really religious growing up, and so, so I'm a spiritual person. There's a lot of confusion in the world about what it means to be spiritual. And here's the thing to understand. In the ancient world that Paul is writing to, there was a lot of confusion about what it meant to be a spiritual person. Because in the ancient world, especially Corinth, especially where he's writing here, it was understood that divine power only came on special people. You've got to get this to get all the weeks that are coming up in this study. It was understood that divine power, they weren't thinking of the God of the Old Testament. They were just thinking about the mythology, all the gods in the, in the universe, that idea. That divine power only came on special people. There's still a lot of people that feel that way. I could never have any divine power in my life. That's for those other people who really have it together. The incredible claim of the New Testament is that you who have trusted in Christ have the same spiritual power at work in your life as any other Christian has. That there is not a special category of super spiritual people and then everybody else trying to hold it together. That the Spirit of God is at work in your life. But there's so much confusion about what this looks like because Paul says here at the end of verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual things, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. We live in a world where people are confused and uninformed about spiritual things. Why does that happen? The tradition you grew up in. You might have grown up in a religious tradition where you didn't hear very much about the Holy Spirit. Jesus was super important. You worship God. 
the Holy Spirit was that strange force that moved in those other churches where people clapped more and moved more than maybe your church did. And, and so you grew up in that particular tradition. Some people are uninformed about spiritual things because we live in a world where we're kind of turned off by superstitions. We're kind of turned off by the things that look magical. We, we, we're very rational. You're in engineer mind. You're, you're an accounting mind. Everything lines up and fits in a box. And that idea of spiritual stuff is, is okay. It just seems a little out of reach. Or to flip it over, you're someone who thinks of spiritual things as emotion. If you're a spiritual person, you're an emotional person, and so we're driven by that. Paul's writing to a culture in first century Corinth that there's a lot of confusion about spiritual things. We live in a culture in 21st century Oklahoma where there's a lot of confusion about spiritual things. And Paul says here, I don't want you to be uninformed. What does he say in verse 2? In verse 2, he says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, he might be throwing some irony in there with this phrase, you know. The, the Corinthian people, they bragged a lot in Corinth about what they knew. And Paul might be throwing this phrase at them as a little bit, you think you know a lot, but you really don't know a lot. People who claim to know a lot about spiritual things are the people you probably want to be most cautious about. Um, because they look like they have it all together, and in fact, it's usually a veneer hiding something. And so there's this idea of you think you know a lot, you know, what do they actually know? What they know is actually kind of embarrassing. You know that when you were pagans, that word pagan there is a word that shows up in the New Testament. It often means Gentile. Here it just means anyone who is not a worshiper of God. That there was a time in your life when you were not following Christ. That's true for every one of us. It was true for the Corinthians. When you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Okay, two things about those phrases. The first, the phrase led astray is a phrase that ties into being a part of a religious procession. So, so in Corinth, here's what would happen. Corinth was like modern-day New Orleans. They loved parades. Uh, you guys know, many of you know, my family spent a long time in New Orleans. We love that city. We love those, those people. When our poor kids moved from New Orleans to Oklahoma, and they attended the first parade that we had been to in Oklahoma, they looked at me and were like, this is a parade? Like, this is embarrassing. <laughs> we, we spoiled our kids with parades uh, that, you know, you moved to Oklahoma, like, that's not really a parade. But uh, in ancient Corinth, what would happen is they would have these processions or these parades that would go to the various temples. And people would get in line and they would walk in these parades or these processions to these temples, to the false gods. And people really didn't know where they were walking. It just looked like a fun parade. And so they would jump into the procession and be a part of the parade. This is the idea that Paul is going here in 1 Corinthians 12, he said, before you were a follower of Jesus, you would just jump into whatever spiritual parade looked good, and you would follow it along, and where would it lead you? To a mute idol. To an idol that has nothing to offer you. There's so many references in here to speaking, and we're going to see that in verse 3. The irony is the Corinthians, who wanted to sound spiritual when they spoke. They wanted to sound smart, and they wanted to sound spiritual. You know, how, how relevant does that seem to us? They wanted to sound smart. They wanted to sound spiritual. 
They were going to idols who couldn't speak back to them. And Paul says, how foolish is that? You want to learn to sound spiritual, and you're going to an idol that can't even speak back to you. I can tell you about a God who has spoken to you. That's the God that you want to go after. At the end of verse 2, it says you were going after, you were, you were on those spiritual parades, going to these idols, however you were led. Uh, this is a really hard phrase to make, make sense of, kind of what Paul's going for. There's kind of two main options. However you were led can mean there were many ways that you were led astray. Many things could take you away from Jesus. It also is a phrase that kind of has the idea of repetition. Paul's telling them, and you were foolish enough to do this over and over again. It's not like one day you walked up to a mute idol and said, well, that was a dumb idea. I'm not going to find any spiritual power there. You did it again and again. And the next month when there was another spiritual parade, you jumped into that one. He's saying, however you were led, it doesn't matter. The point is you weren't going after the things of Jesus. But verse 3 is the answer. Look at verse 3. Paul tells them, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The word accursed that shows up there is the word anathema. Sometimes you'll hear that word even used in reference to the New Testament, that that's anathema. Anathema is an interesting word because it actually connects back to our study in Joshua. If you were here when we were going through the book of Joshua, in Joshua you'll see a phrase that shows up that talks about the banned things or the things set apart for destruction. That concept from the Old Testament is very similar to where, where the word anathema shows up in your New Testament. It means something that has been rejected, something that has been cut off or, or pushed aside. What was happening here is that the people were feeling very spiritual, but then they were saying things about Jesus that weren't accurate. They were saying, look at me, I'm a spiritual person. Jesus is accursed. And Paul's saying, whoa, whoa, time out here. The goal in life is not to be a spiritual person. Sometimes, Sometimes you'll hear reference in modern-day America, well, at least they're a spiritual person. You're talking about a friend, talking about a family member, somebody you know, well, you know, they're not a Christian, but at least they're a spiritual person. And Paul is saying, red flag, be so careful. It's one thing to say, at least I'm a spiritual person. That's not the point. The point is, if you've experienced the power of God's Spirit in your life, the result of that is you will say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the confession of the early church. That was what people would say when they not only had it right in their mind, but they had it in their heart. Jesus is in charge. He is Lord. Here's a, kind of an important side point maybe just for a second. When we talk about the Holy Spirit over the next few weeks, the work of the Holy Spirit is always to point people toward Christ. The Spirit 
does not work in such a way that he would draw people away from Christ, away from the word of God. And so that's where a lot of the confusion can come into play. The work of the Spirit is to always draw us toward Christ, to cause us to say, Jesus is Lord. What I've done on your notes, if you're looking at your bulletin on the back, is as I was studying this week and thinking about this, there's a parallel between what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 12 and a very important verse in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9. In Romans 10, 9, Paul tells the people that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I know you can point somebody to John 3.16. John 3.16 is a great verse. But just to give someone a very clear answer if they ever ask you, why do Christians talk about being saved? What does it mean to be saved? Ah, man, I would just run to Romans 10.9. It, it's such a clear picture. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's the danger, though. There's a way that you can say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, but you really don't mean it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is what Paul is telling the people. Confessing Jesus as Lord is a proclamation it's something you can only say by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because what you're saying is, I'm no longer in charge of my life. I've raised the white flag. I've given up. I've turned from my sins. Jesus, you're in charge now. I so badly don't want to say, Jesus, take the wheel. But uh, yeah, it's right there. I, I, scratch that from the record. But uh, the early church confession is Jesus is Lord. You cannot convince someone from a purely natural standpoint to make that declaration. That can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in that person's life. So the first point, kind of the main point on your, on your notes is, is Holy Spirit proclamation. That that confession, that proclaiming Jesus is Lord only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means if you're praying for someone to trust in Christ or you're sharing with someone about the, the hope of Christ, this is not something that you're able to talk them into from a purely argument standpoint. It's something when they come face to face with the power of God and say, that's my only hope. I'm turning to him. And that's what Christians have done throughout the centuries is Jesus, you are Lord. You're Savior, you're in charge. Second point is, that Holy Spirit power is tied to the concept of the resurrection. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans uh, 8.11, I think is our reference point on the screen. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here in just a few minutes, uh, when we wrap up our service, we're going to sing a psalm that reflects this verse. Here's what I want you to see from this verse. is when you confess Jesus as Lord, whether that happened when you were five years old at Vacation Bible School, or that happened a couple of weeks ago as an older adult. Whenever you do that, the same spirit that caused Jesus to come back to life is the same spirit that wants to drive the big red tractor. 
that wants to do that work in your life that can only happen by his spirit. What does Jesus' resurrection do for us? Kind of two things I'd want to point you toward, and, and I may have written these on your notes, I just don't remember. The first is the power of the resurrection, that spirit at work in your life, his spirit in your life, is it causes us to have hope beyond the threat of death. It gives us hope of victory over death. You may know someone right now who in their life, they are facing a tragedy that goes beyond anything you could ever imagine. Or you may be in that situation yourself. You're facing pain, difficulty, tragedy, and you continue to trust in life, or trust in Christ, and someone looks at your life and they say, man, I wish I was spiritual like they are because I could never handle that situation. You take the Freemans down at First Baptist Newcastle. You take several families right here in Emmaus. Man, I wish I was spiritual so I could handle that situation. It's not that they're more spiritual than you are. The same Holy Spirit at work in your life is the Holy Spirit that is driving them to have hope and the victory of God over death. And so one of the things that the Spirit does in our lives is he gives us the power to survive. (laughs) He gives us the power to endure. He gives us the power to keep going. That is a spiritual act when everything inside you says give up and you keep trusting in Christ. That is is a work of the Holy Spirit. The other thing that the Spirit does is that same resurrection power begins to transform your life now. He begins to do a work where the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, everything that doesn't describe our lives naturally begins to show up. He begins to gift you. He begins to give you ways that you're able to build up the body and reach out to people. To use Emmaus language, you start to live up in and out. The Spirit of God starts to cause you to worship. People say, man, you're not much of a vocalist, and I've really never known you to be around people, and here you are worshiping in a church. What got, what got in you? What changed? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot truly worship God with your whole heart without the power of the Spirit at work in your life. If Many of you have been a part of a church where you were singing along with the songs and you knew deep in your heart you were faking it. You were there because you knew how to play along, you knew how to do the work, but it wasn't the power of the Holy Spirit driving that worship. We can only truly worship by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't change our lives on the inside without the Holy Spirit, and we're sure not going out to tell anybody about Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit at work there. Holy Spirit proclamation, Holy Spirit power, Holy Spirit purposes. The final phrase, Romans 10, 9, is you will be saved. Look at these verses on the screen from Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them especially if you grew up in church or you've been a christian for a long time remember that god's salvation is not simply a one-time experience that then you move on from you have been saved you are being saved you will be saved we work out our salvation with fear and trembling the work of the holy spirit to bring that salvation in your life did not stop the moment that you were saved. 
the moment you were baptized, the moment you joined a church, it continues. What does God's Spirit do for us? Two words on your notes, and we'll, we'll start to wrap up with these. Group and public. Christianity is a team sport. <laughs> when God's Spirit saves someone, God's Spirit also brings our lives together with people that we might not normally find ourselves spending time around. <laughs> you look around a room like this and you say, hey, you know, some people I could see myself having things in common with and other people, not so much. <laughs> uh, like we have connections, we have not connections. Those are natural things. What God's Spirit does is God's Spirit brings us together in a spiritual family so that we find ourselves loving and serving and caring for people that we would not otherwise do. The role of church is not to say, I need to find the group I connect with. The role of church is, God, what are you doing in me that you want to then do through me? God, who do you want to bring my life together with that would never happen in any other situation? God's Spirit brings us together in a group, and then God's Spirit is always doing public work through us. Christianity is not a private affair. It's not something that only happens behind closed doors. It's whatever he does in us then flows through us. People look at your life and they say, I knew you before, and you were not like what you are now. And you can look at them and say, I know. <laughs> my wife tells me all the time, or my husband or my kids tell me all the time, I, I know that I would not be this way. But... I've confessed that Jesus is Lord, so I'm no longer in charge of my life. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and that same power that can cause somebody to come back to life, that same power is doing this really strange work on the inside of me to make me into a new person that I wouldn't be otherwise. And I've experienced a salvation that's brought me together with other people, and now I'm living in a way, not because I want to show off or be religious, this is just what God is doing in my life. At Emmaus, we talk about proclaiming and displaying Jesus. Proclaiming is what we do with our words that can only happen by the power of God's Spirit. Displaying is what we do with our lives that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to be a part of a church that proclaims and displays Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to go on that journey together over the next several weeks, next several months. If you have never confessed Jesus as Lord, it starts there. If you're showing up at worship trying to fake it, it starts right now. If you know that your heart is not connected with other believers in the church, it starts now. God, do in me what only you can do. I'm gonna pray for us. After I pray for us, we're gonna sing a song about the power of the resurrection at work in our lives. During that song, if you need someone to pray with you, we wanna be able to do that for you. During that song, if you need to confess Jesus as Lord for the first time, we want to be there with you as you do that. Whatever God's doing in your heart, respond to him as we have a chance to sing together in just a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that when we talk about spiritual things, Sometimes that seems very, what's the word? It seems very abstract, seems very theoretical, it seems fuzzy. And, 
but remind us, God, that the work of your Holy Spirit transforms every moment of our life. Our attendance here this morning was not to check off a religious box. It was a work of your Spirit. Our relationship with our families and friends as we go from this place and we go to lunch and we prepare for work tomorrow, that is a work of your Holy Spirit. As we forgive and love and serve and care for one another tomorrow and this week, that is a work of your Holy Spirit. God, we want to be a people. We want to be a church that doesn't make a big deal out of Emmaus, doesn't make a big deal out of us. We want to be a church that points people to Jesus by the power of your Spirit. We do that through what we say. We do that through our actions. We do that as we gather here to worship God, and so we give ourselves fully to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.